0: Hello, and welcome to Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. This is where we discuss topics from our table or yours. I am Michael, and this is a special episode of Table Topics, episode 53 Atomic Robo with Mike Olson. In this episode, Caleb and I sat down and spoke with Mike Olson, the lead designer of the new Fate Core inspired Atomic Robo RPG. Mike was also a member of the team that created Fate Core, or at least compiled it from its older versions into what is now known as Fate Core. Now you guys know that I love that book, not just the system, but the book itself. And I think that it was, for the longest time, the best RPG book that I had ever read in terms of making the rules make sense, using consistent examples, and uh, just being an introductory guide to playing a game. I really believe that Atomic Robo improves upon that, and it is now, my, in my opinion, the best book for introduction of fate to players and GMs. Uh, Mike mentions he will be at Gen Con this year, 2014, and he has a couple games that are on the schedule. I checked. They're already sold out. Uh, he said he would also be doing some GMing on, at Games on Demand. And I am very hopeful that I'll get a chance to play some Atomic Robo with him this year. Before we move on, though, we do have a couple quick announcements. Uh, one, we have a new backer to give a shout-out to. This is Jerry H., Uh, Now, Jerry wasn't interested in doing a monthly pledge through Patreon, but he did want to show us some love and support us, so he arranged for a one-time donation through PayPal. It was very generous of him, and I will be awarding him some Patreon-only rewards equivalent to the donation that he gave. So over the next few months, he'll be getting early downloads, uh, he'll be getting access to some uh, behind-the-scenes stuff, he'll be invited to our monthly movie podcast, and that kind of thing. Uh, we also have a new Patreon backer named Lucas, uh, who is one of the co-members of City of Brass. And he backed us at uh, the Masters level program, which means I will be running a monthly game for him and four of his friends. Which I believe are going to be two of his friends and two of his friends' kids. Which is going to be a first for me, because I don't normally run uh, games for kids. And so I'm going to have to tone my uh, adult content down a little bit. But I'm really excited about it. I'm very shocked and happy that uh, Lucas decided to back us at that level. We've already been doing some behind-the-scenes stuff as far as getting characters together. We are going to be playing fifth edition. Uh, We will not be recording these uh, for release just because we already have so many podcasts that are coming out. I I don't know that I could do another uh, session, but I'm very hopeful that I will provide a game to him and to his friends that uh, is worthy of the donation that he's given us. So thank you both to Jerry and to Lucas. Uh, We also have two new iTunes reviews, both of which are five-star. The first is by Clancy777, who is also one of our Patreon backers, uh, so he is really showing us some love. And his review is titled, A Wonderful Tabletop RPG Podcast. Clancy goes on to write, I came across this show a few months ago while looking for podcasts to listen to as I learned the rules of Paizo's Pathfinder version of D&D. I highly recommend the old Dungeon Talk episodes and the newer ones that are now called Table Topics. These focus on various topics that are valuable to anyone who is interested in being a DM or GM of any game system. The hosts are engaging throughout each episode. They often remind listeners that as long as your group is having fun, you're doing it right. That kind of attitude is also reflected in the advice being given. Lastly, I will mention that they are also recording play sessions that cover a number of different game systems. I have not listened to as many of these, but I enjoy the few that I have heard. Thank you so much, Clancy. And lastly, we have a review from Dominic951 titled Fantastic and Unique. Dominic goes on to write, This is a great podcast where the people present unique ideas and fresh perspective to the D&D community. That is a great and short review, unlike this intro. Thank you, Dominic. So now on to the show. here is Table Topics Episode 53, Atomic Robo with Mike Olson. You're very welcome, and we are here mostly to talk about Atomic Robo, the new core ish game that just came out recently.
1: Fate core ish yeah.
0: Uh, so before we get too far into it though, I want to make sure that uh, people know who you are if they don't already, so would you mind just kind of introducing yourself a little bit, maybe some of your bona fides?
1: Uh, sure. Um, my name is Mike Olson. I have a blog, uh, the blog Spirit of the Blank, that's all about fate game design, and it started off as tweaking Fate for different genres, and now it's mostly a self-promotion machine, unfortunately. I worked on Fate Core and Fate Accelerated and um, the Fate Toolkit and Legends of Anglaire. I did the Fate edition of the Kerberos Club, and uh, I did contributed to Jade Punk, which just came out recently, and I um, also Atomic Robo, the biggest thing I've done that uh, has just come out in print. It's very exciting. And... Uh, uh yeah I I can't imagine where else how else anyone might know me I think that's it I went to Calabasas High School so you may know me from there
0: you're Sagittarius you like balance yeah, uh, no of these. I'm not
1: a Sag come on look <laughs> at me I'm not a Sagittarius
0: <laughs> look at how well I balance things
1: I'm a Libra <laughs> obviously
0: <laughs> fantastic so I did want to ask a little bit so what's your history with RPGs obviously you you kind of started from from what I could gather on you um, with my Google foo um, is that you pretty much were like a game blogger, the spirit of the blank, and, and you were able to use that to transition into being a freelance RPG designer. But yeah. as far as, like, what, where did you start with games? Was it, you know, cousin playing D&D, or, like, how did you get introduced to this hobby?
1: Yeah, in 1980, I'm from 41, so in 1980 when I was, I guess, 7, maybe 8, um, my family went on a cruise to Alaska, and some kids on the ship were uh, advertising that they were running Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, and I played. And uh, I got handed a seventh-level thief. I had no idea what I was doing. I died. I bought uh, two miniatures in Juno on that trip, two pre-painted miniatures that I thought were the coolest thing. And then I came back home. My grandparents bought me the um, – I guess it was not – I guess it was like the basic, basic D&D, that box set, whoever. I, I, I confused those. I don't know if it was uh, Moldvay or Menser. I guess it was Metz, Metzner. Anyway – Frank. Um, and then I, uh, I had no idea how it worked. I cheated on everything. All my characters were characters from Lord of the Rings. I had a seventh-level thief in a game that went to, from levels one to three. And then uh, from there, you know, I played D&D like, a lot, like all through junior high. And then cut to much later in life, I got into Champions because for some reason, out of nowhere, I was like, I want to play a superhero game. And I had no one to play it with, so I started playing through play-by-email. This is in uh, the mid 90s. And so I learned Champions. I thought Champions was the greatest thing, and um, I still like it. And then, like 10 years later or something, I discovered Fate when I played in a Fate game run by uh, Colin Jessup, who's another SoCal Fate guy. Uh, He ran a Star Wars hack of it, and I played at a convention, and I thought that was it, really left an impression. I realized, like, you could do anything I could do with hero, I could do with fate, but with words instead of numbers. You know, like all the little fiddly bits of making a hero character, which I do get into. I just realized, like, oh, you just, like, an aspect is a whole of that stuff, you know, that I could do. So um, I get into that, and then pretty quickly after that, I got really interested in hacking fate through different things. So I started Spirit of the Blank. And then, not long after I started the blog, actually, Cubicle7 contacted me, or Chris Birch contacted me about working on the fantasy edition of uh, Starblazer Adventures. The uh, Starblazer Adventures was Cubicle 7's, like, big kind of gonzo, heavy metal space opera fake game based on uh, the Starblazer comic from the UK. So they wanted to do a fantasy version of it, and um, they, he saw my blog, and he wanted to know if I wanted to, to work on that, and I, like, jumped at the chance. I thought it was the awesomest thing. Because like I didn't go out looking for work or anything. I just you know to have someone contact me was pretty rad. And then um, I discovered when I got on, we started working out, and I saw what they had. They had like chunks of my of my blog in there already. Oh wow. <laughs> Things I had written. So I was like, oh well, it's a good thing you brought me on then, because <laughs> you're apparently already using what I wrote. So yeah, that was probably um, a
0: conversation behind the scenes where they're like, you know, we probably should get this guy on board since we're yeah, doing kind of all this stuff. Yeah, I think
1: that may have been the case. Yeah, I hope I'd like to think so. <laughs> so that was I, I fell backwards into it, you know. That's um, that's how I got into freelancing, and then things just kind of every every additional thing built from there. So I worked on Legends of Anglaire, which is what the fantasy Starblazer came to be. Its final title was Legends of Anglaire. and then um, Shane Ivy at ArcDream, Dream, I guess this was a couple years later in 2000 or 2010, I guess. He put out a call for wanting to do a Fate edition of the Kerberos Club. And I saw this, it was right around in May or something of, of that year. And as it happened, I, I had a super pack of fate that I was running, that I was running a convention like that weekend. And so I, I was like, well, I have something already that I'm already playtesting and that it's working. And also, I worked on this other thing and I have this blog. And so I, I thought, well, maybe, you know, I could get a shot at that. And then he um, wrote back. While I was at the convention, I got an email from him saying, okay, do it. I'm like, oh, really? No <laughs> conversation from there? No, no? can I see a resume or <laughs> look at your work or anything? It's just like, okay, it sounds like you can do it, so why don't you do it? I'm like, great. So uh, that was really exciting, and that resulted in uh, what's come to be known as Strange Fate, the version of Fate used in the Kerberos Club, and uh, which is like really, I've heard it called the, the Hero System version of Fate, which is appropriate given what I said about me liking Hero and Champion so much. So that was cool, and then that got the attention of Brian Clevenger, who is the co-creator of Atomic Robo with Scott Wegner, who's the artist um, of Atomic Robo. Brian's the writer, and he contacted me in 2011. So a few months after the Kerberos Club uh, Fate Edition came out and said, listen, we've got this comic called Atomic Robo, and we want to do a role-playing game of it, and I uh, I really like Strange, Strange Fate had a weird accent there for a second. I really like Strange Fate, and I was able to make Atomic Robo in it just the way I wanted, so I do want to do a role-playing game um, of that. And here, I was like, I feel like Atomic Robo sounds familiar. Like, I go to Comic-Con in San Diego every year, and I feel like I must have seen the, the name there or something. And um, so he sent me PDFs of a few issues. And as the story famously goes, but I'll never get tired of telling, um, I read like a page and a half of the first... Issue of Volume 6, I guess is what it was. And right away I was like, oh, I get it. I'm in. This is awesome. I like, I was so enthusiastic about it. I had to reply to him right away. So like, yes, whatever this is, I know you don't have money. That's fine. Because they're like, we're indie comic creators. We don't have any money. I was like, well, well, figure something out. I'll work for a percentage. Whatever. Let's do that. So that was exciting. And then he ended up saying on uh, Twitter, he was like, hey, Fred Hicks, I sure like that Spirit of the Century. And then Fred Hicks said, well, I sure like that Atomic Robo. And then I guess they got to talking. And then Brian comes back to me and says, hey, I may have mentioned something about this to Fred Hicks on Twitter. And I was like, oh, man, now now Evil Hat's going to take this thing that, like, came to me out of nowhere that I was going to get to do. and uh. So I had to get on Twitter to see what was going on. And um, it didn't go that way at all, of course, because Fred Hicks is such a good guy. So that project moved from – it went from being like this little thing that um, – like, we don't have any money and all this stuff. Like, this little game we'll try to make somehow to a really high-profile game for Evil Hat, which was amazing for me because I like Evil Hat so much, and Spirit of the Century is such a huge influence. Just to be able to work on a game for Evil Hat was pretty amazing. So, yeah, Fred Hicks is such a good guy. He was like, great, bring Mike Olson on, too. And then off of that, then I ended up working on *Fake Core because of Atomic Robo. And because Atomic Robo is going to be based on *Fake Core, so core was being worked on at the same time, so then I got put on that. So, like, in a short space of time, I got, you know, like a whole whack of big high-profile stuff to work on.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things that, that was interesting to me doing that research is that based off of, you know, obviously Atomic Robo just recently came out, uh, but just within the last couple of weeks, I believe, that I found it interesting that you actually were kind of brought on for Atomic Robo first. And yeah. then sort of got brought into Fate Core, even though Fate Core came out first. Yeah. But but the the takeaway for me there, and for hopefully people listening, is that you just did good stuff on your blog, and that you know you did good good work there, and it brought you this attention that's allowed you to do these now really amazing things.
1: Yeah, it's really cliche, but it's true. Like you always hear, like, oh, how do I get into the you know game industry or something? People always say, well, be a fan of a game and be vocal about it and run demos and go to conventions and get to know the people who make it and all this stuff but uh that's you know kind of exactly what I did with the blog was just write about fate a lot and I had a lot of ideas for fate and I thought well I may as well put them online somewhere and um so you know that uh, that paid off it was never with the intention of being work I just wanted kind of additional motivation to like write stuff down and get it finalized instead of just ideas in my head um so yeah that did uh, ended up working out um. Professional-wise, I had no plans. Like back in 2008 when I started it, I did not expect to uh, end up working on, say, Fade Core. But uh, that's how it went.
0: I got I got two kind of follow-up questions. Uh, one, do you still have those two miniatures you got in Alaska? I
1: bet I do. I bet you. I remember one of them was an archer and the bow broke. But I oh. bet I still have it somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was like eight or seven or something, and I wasn't going to treat them well. Oh, also, no, they were yeah. probably they were probably pure poisonous lead since it was 1980, <laughs> so it's just as well if I don't have them on hand all the time. I have kids now, so, you know.
0: All right, and then I completely blanked on the other question I was going to ask you, so we'll go to Caleb first and see if I can remember. Caleb, do you have any questions to, for Mike before we move on? I got a whole list of stuff we got off the internet I want to ask you about. Off oh, the
1: internet? Uh-oh.
2: I just got to say that I am – I I have been a huge fan of Scott Wagner's art since – um. His old yeah. series, he did uh, Killer of Demons, mm-hmm. which was an awesome, awesome trade paperback. And I didn't realize he did this until I started flipping through the book. And I was like, holy hell, this is really familiar.
1: Well, his name's on the front.
2: Well, I, I didn't <laughs> look at the front.
1: I yeah, okay. Right fair
2: enough. The the cover. I was so excited just to read how the hell to play this game. I, I yeah. skipped the beginning stuff.
1: Yeah, his it's really, you know... Part of the reason why Atomic Robo was in development for over two years was um, when I had the idea of let's illustrate examples with art. Then it became a task of let's, we got to find a lot of art, right? So who, uh, who else was going to find all that art but, you know, Muggins here? So I, I had to go through, well, I say I had to, but I, it was kind of tedious, but I actually really enjoyed it. But going through and finding art to illustrate every, you know, gameplay example was uh, a time consuming process. Uh, as you can see it in, in, you know, in the book, how his art has changed over time. Um, and it's just interesting. I like the stuff, you know, the first volume, and I, I like the stuff, the ninth volume, and uh, everything in between. But it's really interesting how just character designs have changed so much. So, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, I, I unfortunately haven't... He this body of work that I only know about through, like, hearsay. But um, uh, that that's it. But I'd, I'd like to see it.
2: Well, the, the fact that you actually pulled his artwork to support the different examples and show different interactions within the rules just really proves how well put together this book is as an entity. Michael and I were talking the other day about the overall presentation of a game book and how important it is for that kind of first impression when reading through a book and the way you just formatted this and put it together it's so intuitive and easy to read, and then you just threw in – you peppered it with all these different little inserts and artwork, and it, it's just – it's so exciting just to read the book, let alone play the game.
1: Well, good. That's, uh, thanks. <laughs> That's what I wanted. And all, all credit also due to Jeremy Keller and Adam Jerry, both of whom did uh, editing and layout on it. Jeremy was the one who – I originally was thinking of panels that were just captioned, describing what was happening in the game. Um, Jeremy was the one who had the idea of having the text boxes with the out of character player GM dialogue, um, and then the panel would be the fiction. Like, here's what the players and GM are saying. Here's what the fiction looks like. Uh, so that was uh, that was definitely a, a breakthrough bit. Um, and then uh, Adam was just so uh, great about. <laughs> I joke that I liked working with Adam so much because he did anything I wanted him to do. <laughs> but um, he was just uh, he was just really great to work with and lots of times I'd be like, "Oh man, I know this is a hassle, but we need to move this panel. This is the wrong panel or we need to move this text box up like, you know, half an inch because it's in the way of the, it would look better if like this." I had like little nitpicky things all over the place that I was asking for, and he was always just great. Great, let's make it better. You know, it's all this all makes it a better book, so I'm I'm happy to do it. But man, I, I really felt like I was testing his patience constantly.
0: Well, I wanted to, to second that because that's one of the things I you know, again, I, this is primarily like a D and D type of podcast. I'd say the majority of our listeners are probably D um, and D, as was I for a long time, and I just recently came to Fate Core, and I've professed my love for it. I love the way Fate Core is written. I love the book, the design, the layout. I think it's probably the best RPG book I've ever read, as far as making it makes sense and understanding the rules and the consistent examples throughout. And just recently, you know, fifth edition Basic came out. I wrote a review, yeah. and ha- half my review was. They should have done it more like FateCore. Like, <laughs> I, I like the system, but the PDF was very bare bones, and I was like, you know...
1: Well, that's the idea, though, right?
0: True, but the I was looking for consistent examples.
1: Right, right. Yeah, that's been the big complaint, right? There's not enough examples.
0: Not enough examples. And so, you know, we got a copy of the PDF of Atomic Robo because we wanted to read it before we spoke to you. And in all honesty, I think Atomic Robo is actually a better instruction manual for Fate than Fate Core is because specifically of the way the art interacts with the rules, it's amazing. That was a big, I'm going to say that's a big advantage that we had on that. We had,
1: you know, I don't know how many pages of art, hundreds of pages of comics, right, to go through. And, uh, you know, that's why it was, and, you know, consider that we when we started developing Atomic Robo in 2011, it was volume six You know, that was what was happening then. Now it's volume nine. (laughs) So like every time we thought like, okay, here's the timeline. Here's all the characters we need. Here's what this game will contain. Great. And then it would get delayed enough that the next volume would come out. Like, okay, so now include these characters and this. Now we have this additional art we can pick from and all this other stuff. Great. And then volume eight. Okay. You know, just have to like re -re re-examine the scope of what we could have in the game all the time. Um, and then originally the idea was to purposely delay it until a certain plot development happened in the comic. But, um, you know, uh, but, we, but what was great because the, the delays also gave us time to really make it the game that, you know, we wanted it to be and give it the look that, like, I was super, I mean, I, again, Adam won't say so, but I was super demanding and controlling about the look of the book and, uh, you know, uh, just, I just wanted the right. It was so satisfying to find the right piece of art for something, or just like, oh, this this will look great with this, or this. The this facing these two pages will make like a little a little mini story on their own, just with the panels or something. Uh, it was it was really cool to do like art direction, basically, it was something I'd never done before. But um, you know, I I cared so much about the look of the book that uh, you know it was it was just important to get it looking as good as possible. So I'm glad that it paid off. I'm glad you like it.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine the amount of time that that took, but it it is amazing. And uh, one of my original questions, which I've now learned the answer to, but I think you did such a good job, is I actually wondered if that art was created for this book. I didn't realize that it was all taken out of the examples yeah, of the because they fit so well.
1: Right, right. Well, in all fairness, Scott did do, uh, I think, seven new portraits. So he did six new character portraits and then the illustration for the the Biomega Kaiju in the character write-ups in the back. There's like a big turtle monster attacking Tokyo or something. Um, that's an that's a new piece of art. He did new art for some character portraits, basically. But everything else, we had so much to pick from, and it's all Scott's art. You know, we didn't go to Real Science Adventures, which are this anthology series, Real Science Adventures, which use different artists to tell you know other stories that are like tangentially related to Atomic Robo, um, mostly. Um, so we didn't go to those artists. It was, all, it was important to Scott that all the art in the book be his. And I was like, right on. <laughs> I'm, I'm all for it. I love the, uh, even though his art has changed over time, it's still recognizably his. I love the, the unified, you know, kind of tone of the art throughout.
0: Now, I, I remember my second question from earlier is, what is your background as far as, like, were you an English major? You know, because the yes. writing is really well done and, and funny. And I just realized that we probably have a lot of people who don't know what Atomic Robo is. We probably need to explain that a little bit better. Oh, sure. But, but like, one, one page into the book, and I was sold. Like, when I read your thing about Indiana Jones, basically applied that to all science.
1: Oh, okay, okay. So this is important to note because I don't want to take credit for this. So Brian Cleminger did write some, too. I wrote the bulk of it, but Brian wrote that intro a bit in the very beginning. And then he and Scott, I believe Scott had at least input into it. I don't know if Scott wrote anything on it, but I know they, you know. There's a bit in um, telling stories, the Atomic Robo way, where um, they have Brian breaks down. Here's how here's how we organize a volume of Atomic Robo and like the four different steps of the story and stuff. Um, that was Brian too. So yeah, the beginning part is yeah, the intro part is great. It really sets the tone for the book. Great. That's all Brian. That's not me at all. So okay, um, well, we'll
0: give him my things because it was. I mean, it, I was literally laughing out loud reading yeah. parts of this book. And then my favorite part that I haven't read. Every word. I, I read probably about half of it, and then I had to skim the last half because I ran out of time. Sure, sure. But but when you get to the to the chapter on magic, just the first word, and I was cracking up because I just thought that was just a, such a great transition. It's like magic. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> that like, that was right. it. I just I thought that was great. There's there's
1: science we don't understand, but there's no magic.
0: There is no. So, yeah. It, so again, for anybody just to see how the book is written, it is, whether it was you or someone else, the, the writing was really well done. Um, really, I mean, it captures the spirit of the comic, I feel, and uh, it's just it's just a great book all the way around. Well, that was part of the, that was part of the challenge too, was, you know,
1: the comic has such sharp dialogue. It's, uh, it's, it's a great all ages comic in general, but part of what makes it so good is it's so smart and it's, it's funny and it's just, it's really well written. So part of the challenge was to have, trying to make the text of the role playing game feel as much like have the same, you know just the feel of the comic not like it's written like the comic but have that same kind of mix of humor and uh you know smartness and still be informative and engaging um so that was uh, a challenge but it was fun to do because you know um like I respect their work so much that uh, I wanted to I wanted to you know really like get as close to that tone as possible. So, um, it was it was fun to write. Honestly, um, it took a while, <laughs> but but it was uh, it was fun to do, and I'm I'm glad people are enjoying uh, reading it because uh, you know.
0: So, if someone is not familiar with Atomic Robo, how would you explain it to them? So,
1: in in 1923, uh, Nikola Tesla uh, invents a an atomic powered robot. He calls Atomic Robo, and debuts him. And Tesla at this point in his life was kind of a, the, the twilight of his career. He was, I guess, dismissed as kind of a, a crackpot in some circles. And then he invents Atomic Robo, and suddenly he's relevant and everyone likes him again. Um, and so he invents Robo to basically carry on the work that he's not going to be able to do once he dies. So uh, Robo, early in his life, he you know, has to study science a lot and learn a lot of stuff and everything. But he's really interested in – you know. Um, like a pulp adventure and, and stuff like that. Volume five is about, is about something that happens with Robo when he's, I don't know, seven or eight years old. Um, and it's all like thirties pulp, uh, adventure. Um, so Robo goes on, he's effectively immortal and more or less invulnerable. Um, so he goes on to have adventures over the next, uh, 90 years. I guess he turned 90 last year and he, um, establishes a think tank called Tesladyne that, um, is sanctioned by the U.N. to go around the world and, and to deal with uh, scientific weirdness. And they're they're kind of um, a mix of, uh, like, the Hong Kong Cavaliers from Buckaroo Banzai and uh, Ghostbusters, kind of, I guess. But they're very well-funded because um, Tesla left Robo a lot of money and Robo has made a lot of money on his own, just uh, being a good scientist, inventing things. And, you know, he had a lot of, like, military contracts earlier on. So um what's cool is that Robo first of all Robo acts like a real person he wears clothes you know he he thinks and talks like a normal person he just happens to be a an mortal and vulnerable robot um and he has this colorful cast of characters around him the action scientists of Tesla 9. and uh you know because his life because his life is so long so far he's 90 and he's still having adventures you get, over the course of the comic, you get all these different adventures set in different time periods over the 20th century and now in the 21st century. So there's stuff that happens in World War II. There's that 30s pulp adventure stuff I talked about. There's some stuff in the uh, uh, South Pacific in the 50s. Uh, in the 70s, he goes to Mars. Um, in the, 1999, all kinds of weird stuff happens with uh, basically a sentai team in Japan and uh, the ghost of Thomas Edison. And um, it just you could do anything with him if you set it in the right time period and have the right tone. There's cyberpunk stuff that's going to happen in the 80s that they haven't done in the comic yet. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's a, it's it's a ton of fun. It's a really uh, it's a fun idea. I've heard people compare it to, like, Hellboy, but with science instead of magic, which is true to an extent. But Hellboy also has, like, a real kind of doom and gloom about it, like... Isn't Hellboy saying he's eventually going to destroy the world? Like he's destined to destroy the world in some, in some way? Uh, Robo doesn't have that kind of baggage hanging over him, so it's a much more optimistic take in general, I'd say. But um, uh, it's still it's it's not an, uh, an unfair comparison. Um, but yeah, it's and the great thing about the comic too. You can start anywhere in any volume of the comic. There's there's continuity, but it's not it's not chained to continuity. So you can come into Volume 7 not knowing anything and still read Volume 7 and enjoy it and then go back to Volume 3 and read that. And, you know, they're not... uh, It's not one ongoing story that you can't jump into the middle of. So uh, they were very smart about that.
0: Now, Caleb, you were able to track down a couple uh, of the comics to read in preparation too uh, through some online resources like the free versions of stuff. You want to talk about those quickly?
2: Um, Yeah. I am definitely a big comic book nerd, and I did have that background with Scott Wagner before, so I was excited yeah. to jump into this. Um, honestly, the the comics are outstanding. Um, I, I did draw that uh, Hellboy, but with science comparison as I was yeah. reading, but yeah. I think the big difference is that um, Atomic Robo is, is the light at the end of the tunnel. It's positive. Right. Right. Yeah, the action scientists and TeslaDyne—they're solving problems and they're saving the world. They're yes, they're reacting to giant monsters and evil brains and jar scientists and dinosaurs, but they do it with a tongue-in-cheek, plucky attitude, and and they're eventually going to come out on top. So, awesome, awesome stuff. And come on, guys, anything that puts stats for Carl Sagan. And Stephen Hawking, in the book, is fucking <laughs> awesome. You- well,
1: Sagan was a must, because he really figures prominently in uh, Volume 3. And also in Volume 1, he has a bit in Volume 1. So, like, we really had to do Sagan. I, I knew that was a must. I had to do Sagan. Stephen Hawking appears for one panel <laughs> in one issue of, uh, of Volume 1, but still, as like, well, if we're doing Sagan, I really think we should do a Stephen Hawking <laughs> But we uh I had kinda wanted to do Neil deGrasse Tyson, but um uh you know, it was just like a matter of time and page count and stuff and I was like, Well he never actually shows up in the book. It'd be kinda kinda weird to do. He's not even alluded to anywhere in the book, but but you can play Carl Sagan in this game. There are stats for Carl Sagan. Go play Carl Sagan. <laughs> I,
2: I just I'm l- screw the interview, let's just play the damn game.
0: Yeah, that's fine. I, to be honest, that was one of the things I was thinking. Let's just let's just play over Hangouts and then yeah. we'll record that because it does actually, seem like an awesome game.
1: I'm actually running an Atomic Robo game for another podcast where Brian and Scott are going to be playing, um, probably as Martin and Lewis, their uh, their analogs from Atomic Robo. <laughs> um, I'm doing that on Saturday, so I've okay, never that done that like... before. Hey, oh, this is a good this is a good. Uh, have you guys run games over Hangout before? Yes. Okay, so that's a thing that works because I've never done it <laughs> or played in
0: one. And I think a game like Fate uh, or Fae, because Caleb and I actually both play in a game a uh, Fate Accelerated set in the Deadlands universe. Oh, okay, cool. And I think Fate and Fae work better than most because it is such a narrative style that you're not yeah. worried about maps and grids and positioning. Right. You're, just, you're just talking to each other. So uh, for me, Fate or Fae both work great over Hangout.
1: And Fae, for people who might not know listening to this, is Fate Accelerated Edition, which is a, uh, a kind of a, an earlier on-ramp to Fate. Like it's 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 mechanically identical to Fate Core in the way things work, but uh, it's just uh, things are kind of streamlined a bit in case you didn't want all that extra stuff
2: from Fate Core.
0: And it's well, only five dollars if, yeah, if it's five you bucks. Want to yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, five, five bucks for the physical copy. Pay what you want on drive-through.
2: Well, I, I think what we have really summarized over the course of our show about Fate in any of its forms, is that Fate works awesome when you are hacking it or shoehorning it around an existing property. It's such a great way just to build any character you want. I mean, my prime example whenever anyone asks me about Fate is, hey, you want to play Ghostbusters? We can play Ghostbusters without trying to worry about how to write the stats for a Proton.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah.
2: You just have a damn Proton pack and you can use it. (laughs) Yeah. And, I mean, I, yeah. I learned about Fate through the Dresden case files. Oh, yeah, that was, okay. That was the first Fate book I got. I had no idea what Fate was. I was just, I bought the book because I'm so in love with the Dresden series. Right. And it took me forever to wrap my head around Fate in that context. And then I read Fate Core, and Lightbulb went off, and I read back, and now we do Dresden all the time because now it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Well, yeah, Fate Core is a uh, a definite – Kind of reorganization and Im- improvement over Fate 3.0, the, the previous edition of oh, Fate. Oh yeah. I'd say. Um, and, I, and I say that I would have said that just coming on to Fate, you know, the first day, not not suggesting anything I did on it had anything to do with that. But um, yeah, it, it definitely the idea of the the four outcomes and the four actions. That's that's a real big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think that now has become that and aspects. Those have become like the core of Fate for me.
2: The game, they really if game
1: has that that stuff. Then it feels like a Fate game.
2: And the stuff that you added in to Atomic Robo is just icing on the cake. I mean, when I got to the character sheet and I was flipping through that, the, just the little tweaks you added to the, um, the aspects and the skills, it, it just blows it out of the water. It's so outstanding. Oh, well, thanks.
1: The, the idea was um, from the very beginning was let's make a game where you can just sit down and play within you know five or ten minutes um, as as cool as all the city creation and is in judgment files and like the kind of interlocking character backgrounds of fake core and most fake games the idea was everyone already has connections to each other they're all action scientists at tesladyne we don't have to go and do backstories that never comes up in atomic robo so it's not going to be relevant here the only important thing is that you guys all work for Tesla Dine and you're working together to you know save the world today um for you know whatever value of something wrong with the world is today <laughs> whatever the uh, scientific uh, catastrophe happening today you're going to you're going to fix it so that's where skill modes came from where instead of picking all your skills individually just pick three you know skill groups um out of a list of four so you're just picking all but one and then you rate them plus 1 plus 2 or plus 3 and then that determines in large part what skills you have you can improve some skills from there for the most part, you know, you pick your skill modes, and you can be, you know, done uh, if you want from there. And that was that was kind of a big deal because it just makes it a lot faster if you don't have to look, look through a big list of, uh, it, it's you know, not the Fake cores list of skills is so big, but you know, um, you're not you're not picking from a list of you know 20 or 23 skills or something. You're picking from a list of four modes, and uh, and they're evocative. Uh, vocatively named enough that you can figure out what they do—like you know, action, banter, intrigue, science. Those all sound like a thing. So um, that—that's the idea. What do you want your character to be about? You know, what's what's the main thing that you're about? You're you're a scientist, or you're like a you know, action hero type, or you're a sneaky type, or you're a face of the group, or whatever. Um, and that seems to cover the bulk of what people do in Atomic Robo. If you want to go outside that, then there's a there's a method in there that I'm sure you saw for making weird modes and you know custom skills and stuff that was uh, that was kind of um, kind of a streamlining of uh, strange fate custom skill creation to make it faster and easier.
0: Yeah, the uh, the easy no math method of character creation in Atomic Robo it seemed to me it was very much like a, a middle ground between Fate, which doesn't really have skills, and yeah. Fate Core. And it seems like it would be a great game to play at a con because you can have characters five, ten minutes. Even though creating characters in Fate is fun, if you do it correctly, I mean that could end up being a whole session. Yeah, exactly. Atomic Robo, you could be going in ten minutes, and one of the key elements of it in Fate in general is you don't have to have a complete character. You can yeah. just say, I'm an action scientist, start playing, and then all of a sudden when you need to be a helicopter pilot, go, okay, I'm also an ace helicopter yeah. pilot, and then keep going yeah, you say my modes are action,
1: science and banter. Okay, great. So you're flying a helicopter since you have action at plus three, you have a skill called vehicles that's automatically at plus three. So you're good with all vehicles. you're good with all action things by default. And then if you are flying that vehicle and you fail a roll to keep it in the air, you're like, I would like to be better at helicopter flying now, please. you can um you know improve that vehicle skill up from plus three to plus five. You give yourself a stunt for especially good with helicopters, you know, plus two to whatever when flying helicopters and suddenly be like the best helicopter pilot at Tesladyne uh, just because you need it to be in the moment or give yourself an aspect, uh, you know, for that too. Yeah, the, the idea was definitely you make your character on the fly. There's no pressure to finish your character during one session because that's how we kind of meet action scientists in the comic. They're just faces at first. And then, you know, as you read the comic, you get to know them. Some action scientists... You know, those faces stick around. We get to know them better. They become uh, major characters like Lang or Bernard. You know, we, they get fleshed out over the course of uh, the comic, which would be over the course of play. So first you decide, yeah, I'm going to call my character Lang, and she's going to be kind of a tough and action-oriented. And then you figure out later on, like, well, she's really action-oriented. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you flesh her out as you go. That's proven really successful in – well, it was very successful in playtesting, but it's great for playing at conventions too because – you know, you can just, uh, you just go, you know, you don't need to do a lot of work on the front end.
0: I think it also actually kind of fits the action trope from TV shows and movies too, where you have that, where suddenly someone just does the thing. They're really good at the thing they need to be good at right then and right there right. with no background. So it's yeah. not like it's even a cheat. It's like, Oh, I see that in movies and TV shows all the time. And that fits that pulpy action that you're going for. So I think that's actually a, a kind of a cool element of Atomic Robo well, yeah, that- in general that's how you find out someone
1: is that expert helicopter pilot because they pull off some incredible move, you know, or they, 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 uh, you know, pull the team out of the fire just by the skin of their teeth, you know? So that's, it's a more exciting way for things to happen. You're like, Oh, apparently I'm really good at fighting guys, or apparently I'm really
2: good at robotics.
0: <laughs> okay. I, I did want to jump into, we had a, a couple of questions that were sent in that I want, to, I want to make sure that we cover. The first one is from Kevin Baird. And he wanted to ask that, um, atomic robo, specifically in Fate Core in general, are infinitely hackable. You, know, you yeah. could play Ghostbusters, you could play Hellboy, you could play X-Files, which I'm a big fan of. Are there any IPs, if you could, if you could just get the license for any IP you wanted, what would be your favorite next version of Fate or Atomic Robo hack?
1: Um, well, I'm working on uh, a, a role-playing game of um, Sparks Nevada, Marshall on Mars, which is uh, part of the Thrilling Adventure Hour. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com to see what that is. It's a live stage show in L.A. that's also a podcast. And Sparks Nevada is one of the storyline segments they do. Um, it's basically like kind of 50s western combined with 50s sci-fi on Mars. So it's a, it's a kind of retro sci-fi slash western thing. And um, I just love it to pieces. So um, I have been working on a role-playing game of it, and I got to run it for the creators of Thrilling Adventure Hour and some of the actors who make it happen every month. That was really cool. So that's the thing that is, uh, you know, it's been happening. There was a while there were every year at Comic Con in San Diego. I would harass Greg Broadmore uh, from Weta about doing a Doctor Grodbart's role-playing game. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Doctor Grodbart's infallible etheric oscillators. They're um, like fake, fake replica ray guns. Also, kind of a retro sci-fi thing that Weta Workshop makes. They're just these wacky like classic kind of Buck Rogers-looking ray guns that obviously aren't real ray guns. But um, Greg Broadmore as part of part of creating all this, he's created this whole world that's like a whole setting, basically, that supports the existence of these ray guns. And there have been like two books of just, in role-playing game terms, setting material for this world he's created. So I was like, the thing exists already. Let's just put mechanics to it and have a game. So that's another thing I'd like to do. Uh, I, I don't know what else. I know that, um, Brian Clevenger and I have plans to do something else for another creator owned comic, but I, I don't think I can say anything more about it.
0: Oh, man.
1: Uh, yeah. Pretty exciting, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty excited about it. <laughs> How lucky did I get to hook up with that guy and get to do stuff with him? You're
0: um, living well, my friend. Living yeah,
1: well. I, yeah. I, yeah. Other friends of mine said I'm living the dream. I don't know about that, but I'm happy with all that stuff. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Apart from that, um, I do like uh, doing fate hacks, though. You know, that was the whole point behind the blog when I started it is to hack fate for different stuff. I've run, you know, I've used fate to run Futurama and um, like 17th century swashbucklers and uh, wusha and uh, westerns and D and D, all all kinds of stuff. So uh, yeah, I I don't know. I have I have some other projects upcoming that I'm excited about, too, but I don't think I can say anything about those, either. But, um, yeah, I'm busy, man. I'm so kind of overwhelmed and giddy about it. I'm just, you know, it's it's pretty great to, you know, it's because of, uh, you know, well, everything up to this point, but especially Atomic Robo, you know, has really opened doors, or I guess, I don't want to torture the metaphor too much, but basically you know, people, I've had people come to me with stuff, which is crazy, which is, I guess, how this started, but it's still, you know, really something to get used to for people to actually just come to me and want me to work on stuff. So yeah, I don't know. I I, uh, I don't. I'm kind of thinking of what else like I'd really have to do. I think Sparks Nevada and Dr. Gorgboards would be the two things I guess. And one of them is already happening. The other, I've decided I give Greg Bradmore a break. He's, doesn't he doesn't need this nerd harassing him at every <laughs> Comic Con. <laughs> hey, what about this? Hey. Yeah. No, so, I don't want uh, you to sign anything. Just I want to talk about this game idea. Mm-hmm.
0: So speaking of being busy, by the time this comes out, it's only going to be a, probably a couple weeks before Gen Con. Are you going to be at Gen Con and doing any games there?
1: Yes, I will be at Gen Con. I have one Atomic Robo game on the schedule and one Sparks Nevada game on the schedule.
0: Um, I'm also going to be running games
1: at Games on Demand and, uh, uh, that's, I'm, you know, and then playing games, so I'm signed up for some games. But, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to Gen Con. I'm glad that, you know, I thought Atomic Robo would be out before last Gen Con, and it wasn't, obviously, but I'm really happy that it's out for this one, so I look forward to uh, seeing it in the wild. We've been running Atomic Robo at Gen Con for two years now, <laughs> and uh, uh, it's cool that it actually exists as a product this time. So, yeah, I'll be there. I'm looking forward to it. And I, I guess I'm going to run Atomic Robo at some point at Comic-Con in San Diego uh, next week. I don't know exactly when, but I'll have to figure that out.
0: Are you guys going to be at Gen Con? Yeah, well, I will. Unfortunately, Caleb uh, was not able to make it this year, but we're hoping next year. But, yeah, this this will be my second year going. I actually oh, cool. live really close to Indianapolis. I, I don't know why, as big of a nerd as I am. I've never gone before. Right. And I went last year, and it was like literally a life-changing moment. From the, from the moment I was, as I was driving home, I was already planning this year's trip.
1: Yeah, the first year that I went was 2011, I think. And um, I had had this plan for a long time. I'm also, in addition to being a fan of gaming stuff, I'm also uh, a fan of drum and bugle corps and Drum Corps International. And Drum Corps International has its championships in Indianapolis at Lucas Oil Field the week before Gen Con every year. So I had this crazy plan that I would go out for Drum Corps championships that weekend, stay in in town for a few days, and then go to Gen Con. And have (laughs) have this, like, two-week experience of just hanging out in Indianapolis going to, like, you know, two things that I really love. And back in 2011, my uh, lovely, lovely wife said uh, for Christmas she wanted to give me that. For, you know, for Christmas gift. And by then, I was like all disillusioned about Drum Corps. So I was like, uh, I, I, you know what? I don't need to go to Drum Corps, but I would love to go to Gen Con. And then certainly after I went that year, I was like, well, now I have to do this every year. Like, that's just, you know, it's the same same thing with going to Comic-Con in a way. You know, Comic-Con has gotten to be such a hassle. <laughs> I mean, there's a big difference. Comic-Con is a huge hassle. Gen Con is, like, not a huge hassle. But still, like, I'm just used to going to comic-con now i couldn't imagine not going to it but uh yeah i think i really do think if you're if you're a gamer you got to go to gen con once at least just to check it out
0: because i would like to do games on demand i would love to try to get into one of your your fake games atomic robo if it works out i got a pretty full schedule but uh i might be able to clear something for that so i I got a couple other kind of crunchy questions for you yeah for sure Uh, because we're jumping around but was there anything specifically that you made for Atomic Robo, either an additional rule or sort of a modulation of an existing fate cool rule, that was specifically for to try to emulate the feel of the comic? Uh, is there one that comes to mind and talk a little bit about how it was developed and in, uh, in its implementation?
1: Uh, yeah. Well, the big one is brainstorming. It happens in the comic all the time. Scientists, action scientists get together, and they do science at a mystery until they solve it. And um, I wanted to have a something in the game that did exactly that because just making a creative advantage role with your you know hyper-dimensional mathematics or whatever that was not good enough I wanted something that really involved the whole group coming together and coming up with an idea so um brainstorming is that thing where um, everyone uh, it works a lot like a contest where there's three rounds of it and you roll you pick a skill you roll dice against the difficulty number and um, whoever beats that number and gets the highest result Gets to contribute a fact, like a data point, like "Oh, I read a paper on this," or um, "I found this thing in the computer," or "Look at this over here, this weird collection of wires," or something. You know, some fact, just a fact with with that does not solve the problem. Just just a data point. That's it. So when you get, um, it's usually three facts. No, oh, it's always gonna be. Well, not, I guess not always, but it's often three facts. You get these three facts together, and they will describe something, right? You. Everyone, ideally the same person won't contribute all the facts. Uh, you'll get, you know, three facts from three different players. And then everyone makes another role to come up with a hypothesis. Whoever gets the highest result on this, you pick a skill, and then you come up with a hypothesis that incorporates all these facts and also reflects the skill that you're using. And then whatever that hypothesis is, is true. So um, then that's the cue to the GM to, to know what to do next. So the players essentially rest control of what's happening in the game away from the GM completely, they decide where things are going next, and then they give it back to the GM and say okay, so we're going here now. So like um, look, there's an example in Atomic Robo of a failed <laughs> brainstorm where there's some giant ants attacking Reno, and the action scientists are debating like, what's going on? And they're saying maybe, you know, Vic, who has all these crazy theories, says maybe it's the uh, nuclear radiation that made them big. And someone else says, that's not how radiation works. And he goes off in this weird tangent about imaginary physics and all this stuff, you know, so He's In that brainstorm, he's pursuing his own agenda. He's not contributing his victories to the group. He has his own victories he's keeping to himself, and the rest of the group is trying to figure out what's going on. And in the meantime, Robo's on the ground uh, actually fighting the giant ants, you know, smacking them with Buicks and stuff. But it happens repeatedly in the comic where – and it, this often – I mean I don't care what game you play. This almost always happens in any role-playing game. With it, any role-playing game where there's like any kind of mystery where players at some point will say like, well, what's going on here? like someone will just say out of character, you know, like, what is going, like, what is this? What is happening? Why are those guys there? Whatever. And that's kind of the cue to the GM to say, okay, let's brainstorm. Like instead of just having this kind of hemming and hawing and talking for an hour out of character about what might be going on, instead we're going to get together and actually figure out what's going on. Well, you guys are going to figure out what's going on. And then that thing is going to be happening. Um, I'm not, I'm not thinking of a good example off the top of my head, but there are examples in the book. So,
0: well, I wanted to jump in there, and I want to give credit. That, that question actually came from uh, Google+, Plus from a uh, Prunty. I don't know if that's his real name or an Not alias. Not uh,
1: Prunty. Boy, that guy. I assume. <laughs> but, but, Doesn't uh, have to be a guy, I
0: guess. But what I liked about the brainstorming, because what, what it actually made me think of are other games. I know Savage World specifically does this, and 4th Edition did this, where you would have a situation, let's say, that when my character is trying to close the portal that's about to open up and kill everybody and they're being attacked, so half the party is trying to defend me while my wizard is trying to undo the spell. Right. And that's kind of how brainstorming feels to me, is that you could have an action piece that they're trying to protect the action scientist while they're trying to figure out the mystery, and you right. could have this really cool scene going on, so it actually emulates other games better than some of those games do it, I think.
1: Those are the best brainstorms, too, and that's something that, I mean, like I said, it, it does it, that exact thing appears in the comic, but... Doing it in play was something that just emerged organically in a game that I ran at um, Emerald City Comic Con last year, where uh, Morgan Ellis, another uh, evil hat fake guy, was playing and suggested that um, we do the brainstorm concurrent with an action scene that was happening. And I was like, great. And it works fantastically with that because when it's, you know, you bounce around and, you know, when it's your turn, if you're doing an action thing, great, you know, fight that giant ant or punch that robot in the robot face or whatever it is. And if you're brainstorming, then I'm, when it's your turn, all the brainstorming happens for everyone who's in, involved in the brainstorm. All those people roll, and then we get another fact, and then we go to more action. So it really feels like the comic where you get a panel here, where here's uh, you know scientist talking about this thing. You get, we'll go back down to a robo-punching ants, and we'll go back to scientists. Um, it, uh, it really works great. And there was actually a game uh, – Morgan has run this game a few times, I guess. It's um, – it's Atomic Robo plus Super Spies plus Luchadors in the sixties in Mexico City. And there's a I played in this game and there's a scene where
0: uh,
1: kind of I was playing the only completely non science character. And um, everyone else was involved in fighting luchadors or werewolves or whatever. Um, but all like the super powered people, like Robo and these two kind of super powered luchadors were like fighting you know, big monsters. And me and Sparrow Two uh, were doing the Um, brainstorm, and we're the only ones doing it, and I'm not even a scientist, so I'm really at a disadvantage (laughs) here, because there's not a whole lot, you know, if you're not a scientist, you're really kind of limited to what you can do, generally speaking, in a brainstorm, but I don't have a problem with that, because you should be a
0: scientist. see that being the very humorous moment where you come up with just, like, the craziest theory. Everybody stops and looks at you, but then maybe you're right, because you roll really well or something. Or, or
1: like, uh, what actually happened was everyone else, I think other people were coming up with facts, uh, it wasn't just me. I don't think I came up with any facts, but I'm the one who put it all together. You know, <laughs> uh, using like, you know, I was like, I was like a super spy type. So you know, I guess I would have knowledge of stuff going on. I could, I could put two and two together, come up with five. And uh, so that was pretty satisfying. Like, first of all, I never get to play, so it was satisfying just to play at all. But you know, it was, a, it was pretty cool to be the non-scientist and then like be the guy who like, oh right, I'm the guy who comes up with a theory on what's actually <laughs> happening, and I'm right because <laughs> it's a brainstorm. So anyway, that Brainstorm was the big – that feels like – based on the reactions from people, that feels like the killer app of Atomic Robo. I'm really glad that people uh, are enjoying it. The other, the other thing I did that was specifically like mechanically speaking for Atomic Robo was um, invention because action scientists, you know, at times will – you know, you'll need to be able to make a thing. Let's say there was an issue of Volume 3 that's basically all about Atomic Robo and Carl Sagan making a thing to solve a, a problem. So um, there's never a point in any of these stories where an action scientist wants to make a thing and then they don't do it, like they don't succeed at it. It's just they'll always do it. It just depends on how much trouble it causes them. So the invention subsystem is all about, um, like you're guaranteed to make the thing, don't worry. What you're rolling for is to see who gets to pick what kind of challenges you're up against in the course of making it, you or the GM. So if you do really well, you'll have complete control over it. You'll get to pick... The uh, you know the problems that you have the complications you have to go through you know the, the hoops through which you have to jump if you don't roll well then the GM picks them all and you know you can only assume that the GM is going to pick things that are going to be amusing to them and not helpful for you so I actually got to I ran a Crimson Skies game that was based on Atomic Robo I used the mechanics from Atomic Robo and in that game we had a brainstorm and we had an invention someone made a thing so um, that was cool in that game to see I talked about this elsewhere, but in that particular Crimson Skies game, we, we did everything that the game could do. We had conflicts, we had a contest, we had challenge, we had um, you know brainstorming and invention. We did like every way that you could roll dice to do a thing we actually had in that game. It was pretty funny. Um, and uh, yeah, I've uh, heard from others that inventions also has been a, a big hit with people, so that's satisfying too. So th- those are the two main new mechanics things. That, that, were, that were done specifically to reflect how the comic feels. The other things that were kind of mechanical tweaks or more like a, like I said, the skill modes, that's just to encourage fast play, or the way that mega stunts work, where you can pack all kinds of, like, st- several stunts worth of benefits into one stunt, and that's a mega stunt. And the more you overload your character with these uh, mega stunts, the more um, fate points the GM gets to work with to make your life more difficult. Um, and, I, and that was because I didn't really want people to, you know, ham and haw for how much refresh should we start with? And, you know, that's just not how it works in Atomic Robo. Um, there's there's no refresh. I just wanted people to make the character they wanted to make. If you want to make them super powerful, great. But it makes things harder for the, the group in general because the GM gets more fate points to work with.
0: Okay. Well, so. I know uh, Caleb, Caleb has a question for you, but I just wanted to give credit to Peter Quebec. I kind of combined... Uh, time mongers and peter's questions sort of together so i just want to give him credit for that question oh. as, as well as so, well i didn't realize uh, it, there'd be questions from the public this is pretty exciting actually <laughs> yeah i mean uh i think there's a lot of people that are interested in atomic robo and again the book just came out and you know i think pretty much all the questions that i got revolve around the difficulties of, of porting the ip specifically a comic and you know and they all kind of were similar in the fact that you know what did you have to do to try to emulate the feel of the comic
1: yeah those things Basically, those things. <laughs> being able to make Robo and Jenkins as characters, those were, those were the big things the game had to do. And then also being able to make a Dr. Dinosaur that feels like Dr. Dinosaur in play was a big deal.
0: Okay, do- Dr. Dinosaur cracks me up, by the way. Every time I see him on any panel, that is definitely a page that I read.
1: Yeah, have you read Volume 8?
0: Well, I'm not talking about the comic. I'm talking about the book. I haven't actually well, I'm, read well, that. Well, I'm talking
1: about the comic, because Volume 8 is the first volume that actually deals with Dr. Dinosaur like, as a as the prime antagonist. You know, the the other instances of him have just been, like, an issue here or there. But Volume 8 is, like, all about Dr. – oh, it's the Savage yeah. Sword of Dr. Dinosaur. That's the name of William.
0: All right. I, I might have to pick that one up specifically. Yeah. You should check it out. Yeah, Dr. Dinosaur was definitely
1: an important one because he's such a fan favorite. And I got to play Dr. Dinosaur in a game as an NPC. I got to play Dr. Dinosaur and Jenkins as NPCs. Um, Back in February, and I'm pleased to say that he was both of them were a lot of fun and definitely felt like their characters in play. Jenkins was just a monster, (laughs) he was so great. (laughs) Um, He was fighting the PCs and he held off four of them and was a problem for them the whole time, just as he should be, as he would be in the comic. Um, And Dr. Dinosaur was just, you know, just chaotic and causing, you know, Dr. Dinosaur is funny because he just warps. He's like, uh, suddenly, it's a Bugs Bunny cartoon when Dr. Dinosaur shows up. Like, you know, reality kind of takes a holiday. Uh, impossible things happen just because he's around. I mean, there may be better explanations for them, but the point is, like, you know, reality frustrating things happen <laughs> when Dr. Dinosaur is around.
0: Well, you're you're already dealing with, like, an alt history where Atomic Robo was built. Right. You have the ghost of Thomas Edison. You have all these things, but then you introduce a character that's, like, just absurd. <laughs> yeah. Of- yeah, exactly. He was based on a Rifts
1: character, you know.
0: Yeah, he was
1: uh, Brian uh, Brian and Scott or Brian Or Scott. I, at least Brian was a Rifts fan, but um, uh, yeah, so he's he's based on on he comes from Rifts, which seems very appropriate.
0: All right. Well, you and I have have the gift of gab, so we have, we have shut poor Caleb out of this conversation. So yeah, Caleb, some say time. something. <laughs> Getting back
2: to uh, what you were saying before about the um. The brainstorming and the invention, yeah. I think what impressed me the most about those is you really shifted the gameplay towards the players. You, you let them come up with facts about the story. You let them invent parts of the world. And I think that's what makes Fate the, one of the best systems out there. It's not just the dungeon master telling a story and the players reacting to it. Yeah, Fate well, lets yeah, everyone yeah. work on the story together.
1: Yeah, I mean, fate already, exactly. Fate already empowers players so much to contribute to the story. Brainstorming and invention were just natural outgrowths of that, I think. Um, oh, absolutely. Certainly brain, brainstorming more, like, really explicitly says the players are going to decide what's going to happen from here on out. So, you know, be ready to deal with that. But, you know, in theory, that could happen in any fate game, and it does. Like, when I've run fate games just off the cuff, You know, with nothing prepared, uh, you know, I get a lot of player input to figure out what's going to happen next. But um, I really, because I like games and I like game mechanics, it was important to me to really, like, gamify that process and have mechanics that tell you exactly, you know, how this thing works. Um, And uh, invention, too. Like, the the actual invention, like having, like, okay, you're going to be doing that for several scenes, just building a thing. That would be boring. So that's why the invention rules were about like what kind of drama gets created when you want to make this you know piece of technology, um, you know it, it's a story generator more than a, a, you know a subsystem for building a thing, you know what hoops do, that could be like a session's worth of play, you know, we have to get this sensor array from you know JPL. Okay, well figure out how you're going to do that because they don't want to help you. So you well, know, yeah, I, I think
2: I think what you successfully did is just codified a lot of what the average GM would do.
1: Yeah, today. sure. yeah.
2: And you you translated it into a very simple process. I know a lot of times when I've been working on Fate games, I would end up struggling with how to use different aspects of the rule, how to use the Fate Fractal concept of mm-hmm. making anything a character concept-wise. Yeah. And you just, you just broke it down and said, look, Here's how you do it really simply. But it's still fate, so it's still a tool that can be really easily hacked and manipulated if we running a game want to do something different.
1: Well, God, I'm glad that's uh, – I'm glad you responded positively to that. I, I'm terrible at taking uh, praise, by the way, so I'm God, glad I that's working it. out for you. <laughs>
2: um, I I'm worse
1: at taking criticism. Oh. No, I'm just not
2: winning tonight. I've
1: in told tonight. people, I've told people like friends of mine. They're like, "Oh, I have a question about this thing in Robo." I'm like, "I, I don't, I don't want any criticism for like a month. So just <laughs> let me have like a month of everything seems fine, and then I'll, you know, I'll sigh and go back to it." But
0: please. well, if,
2: if if I promise to ask a question in a very positive way, will that be okay?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like a telemarketer would.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: No, I'm, um, I'm happy to answer questions, but every time someone has a question, I fear it's going to result in me going, oh man, they're right.
2: <laughs> um, a
1: problem. No, I'm a current... never
2: right. Don't worry. I'm never right. Okay, um, good. With the, with the mode system you have, you mm-hmm. basically built a loophole into the system with the weird modes where you could essentially say, okay, I don't really want to be action, or scientist as a mode. I need to have dinosaur as a mode. I need to have robot as a mode, which makes perfect sense. It's a great way to catch all those weird little idiosyncrasies, and it's a great way to just embody the customizability of fate, Um, specifically in the point-by system. Um, when you were coming up with a, a weird mode, um, I was a little bit fuzzy on how you came up with or how you determined the points that that weird mode is worth.
1: You know, I just answered this question repeatedly for someone online, so um, I might still sorry. have the answers in my mind. No, it's good. I might still have the exact page references in my head. I know there's page uh, 71 has a thing that's relevant to that. I can't remember exactly what's on there. But basically, a mode costs a number of points equal to the sum of its skills. So every skill has a point cost. So you just add up the point cost of its skills, and then that's the cost of the mode. Um, so uh, as someone mentioned online, I don't know if it was you or maybe somebody else, but they said, couldn't you just have like three modes, three weird modes that all cost like three points, and then have a ton of points left over to improve skills, and just have a character who's like has every skill and isn't terrible at any of them? and uh yeah sure but i don't know if that's fun for you then sure (laughs) i guess (laughs) um but uh there's a great paragraph that uh ben Baugh wrote for the kerberos club where he's basically answering the same question he introduced some mechanics in the kerberos club for the one roll engine that were you know could make skill really broad or or give it um give it different abilities over what it would normally have so there's a like a sidebar there that says, well, couldn't I just make this super broken character out of this? And he says, yeah, I guess, if that's fun for you. But, you know, that doesn't seem like it'd be very fun for you or other people at the table. So, you know, actually try to make a character and not just, you know, a a number machine. But if that's what you want to do, then okay. But, um, um, yeah, add up the points and then that thing. I don't have the book in front of me. Otherwise, I'd give you exact favorite <laughs> references. <laughs> well, no, you were
2: right. It it was page uh, seventy one and seventy two. Nailed I like it. it. Good job. No, Nailed okay. It. Yeah, I I must have gone two and a half through. years in development. <laughs> <laughs> I must have glanced over that when I was reading because I was trying to get through everything. Um, but that makes sense though. It, it's a good way to give the player or the creator of that character the flexibility. And sure, you can play the numbers game and you can just try to break a character, but if you want to have fun and build a character to do a specific thing, you included a very, or a fairly easy to use mechanic to make it happen. So I get it now. So there you go. Yeah, and
1: the, the idea is just to, you know, there are lots, like all the action scientists in the book, there are lots of write ups for action scientists, and they're all made with the four standard modes action, banter, intrigue, science. That's all the action scientists in the book are made like that. Because that's the assumed default character. You're an action scientist. But lots of other characters have they go outside those those parameters, you know. Like Robo, it, it was good. It was a good idea to give him, I think, uh, you know, a robot mode. Or Doctor Dinosaur has dinosaur and crystals. Uh, you know, all those uh, famous sci- Carl Sagan and Stephen Hawking, Thomas Edison, and uh, Tesla. They have a celebrity mode because they're it's kind of a big part of them. They're famous scientists. You know, it was important to me that you be able to customize your character on that kind of level. And then when you make your own mode, you can make your own skill to go with it. And, um, you know, well, Jenkins has a mode called Jenkins. That's his top-rated <laughs> mode. Um, and all his skills are in it. it in- <laughs> his other two modes are Action and Survivor. But Jenkins includes all the skills from those other two modes. So in his character sheet, just everything is under Jenkins because uh, that's just – he's just Jenkins. So, yeah, it was it was important to have a way to really customize your character down to, you know, the individual skill. But I wasn't comfortable with saying, like, hey, just add any old skill you want to these standard modes because I really wanted those to be standardized and atomic, you know, like like a definite thing on their own. You could always count on this mode always has these skills. So weird modes, which was just a temporary name that stuck, weird modes ended up being, you know, to me, like a, a good way to do that. So I'm glad that I'm not the only one who thinks that.
2: But the modes also exist as a nice little catch-all, too. So, if if the player wants to do something that doesn't necessarily fit into a skill, you can say, well, you know, that that fits into your action mode. So just roll with that action mode.
1: Yeah, and for sure, you can almost use, you could use modes like approaches. You know, you could say, I'm action, science, and banter. I have action at three, science at two, banter at one. Whenever I try to do anything that's involving social interaction, I use banter. You know, whenever I try to shoot a gun or jump over a chasm or drive a car or something that's action. You know, you could you don't have to get down to the the level of detail that the skills give you. I like that level of detail and uh, so I wanted to include it, but you know, you could definitely run a three approach game that way. That's how well, the characters most of the character write-ups are like that, like any skill that that isn't uh hasn't been improved in a mode just doesn't even exist on the character sheet because, you know, you just that's just the it has the same rating as the mode, so you don't really need to see it again.
2: Well, well, there you go, guys. Uh, exclusive tonight on RPG Academy. We just invented the Fae version of Atomic Robo. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Congratulations. Um,
1: well, Ryan Macklin just invented the Fate version of Dungeon World, so you know, it's uh, it's in the air. Yeah. <laughs> People just inventing things off the cuff. Well, just, I'm not. Uh, I'm not drinking though. <laughs> well, that just speaks.
2: It just speaks to how great a, a core foundation Fate is. Because within 30 seconds of understanding Fate as a rule set, you can apply it to literally anything you want. The the very first time I ever ran Fate for my group of friends, my gaming group, I said, hey, here's Fate, here's how it works. What do we want to play? Let's just try to do something. And they're like, let's play superheroes, because we've been jiving on superheroes forever. And during character creation, these superheroes evolved into... Master criminals, uh-huh. and we yeah. started planning this giant museum heist, and I just let them do it because it right. works, and there, there's nothing you can't do with it. It just oh, by adapts the way, to anything.
1: Brainstorming is also very good for planning heists, for coming Holy up with plans shit. of any kind. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So right now, Brian Clevenger and I are writing a supplement for playing as Majestic Twelve agents or operatives instead of action scientists. So instead of working for Tesladyne, you work for Majestic 12. Majestic 12 is like a secret government entity that does basically what Tesladyne does, but for secret government reasons. And they're presented in the book, generally speaking, as the bad guys. They are directly opposed, in the, just their their mandate puts them in direct opposition to Atomic Robo. So we don't like them in the book. But there's nothing that says these guys don't think they're good guys. Like I really do think that they think they're doing the right thing. So i I was very enthusiastic about a supplement that would be all about playing Majestic 12, guys. So, you know, Majestic 12, they're not as... I mean, they have scientists, and they have brilliant scientists, I'm sure, but um, I like thinking of them not as uh, quite as brainstormy, creative, maybe, as action scientists. We like action scientists because they're kind of... They feel like kind of mavericks in a way to me. Uh, These are people who work for the government, so things might not go the same for them. So instead of... um, a brainstorm. They have a mission briefing, so sometime during the session, you can flash back to what the mission told you to expect, what was going to be coming up, and that becomes, you know, instead of a hypothesis, that becomes your, I don't know, what an objective, I guess. So they have, they all use the same mechanics, but in a completely different way. But in a similar thing you were talking about, like you know, planning a heist, they'll, uh, they'll go back and say like, well, what were we, what were we supposed to be doing again? <laughs> instead of what's happening here, it's like let's consult our dossier, and. uh, you know, just remind ourselves what we're doing. So yeah, that brainstorm is, uh, I think, is a very, very flexible mechanic you can apply to a lot of things. I used it in that Crimson Skies game too, and that was not a scientist game. You know, most of those people were just awesome, you know, '30s pilots flying weird planes. But uh, still, you know, in any game where I, I just love the idea that in any game where people say, "What's happening?" You can just break out that mechanic and you're like, "Okay, here's what's happening. Let's yeah, figure wh- it out." What
0: What is happening? I don't know yeah, either. Exactly. Let's figure this yeah. out. So that was actually one of one of my follow-up questions was supplements for a topic Robo. So obviously you yeah. mentioned that are, are there future plans for additional supplements?
1: Yeah, um uh, there is a plans for a book of adventures called Field Trip that would be about different uh dyne field offices around the world. Um so these are these would be scenarios that uh, say Morgan and I have been running at conventions for the past couple years and we're just going to tweak them to make them about uh, you know make them fit into that mold of, you know, oh, this is centers around a field office in, you know, Mexico city or Oregon or something instead of uh, whatever else they were going to be. And um, that Majestic 12 book. And then I guess one book that's all about just factions because Brian and I were very enthusiastic about the Majestic 12 book, but I don't know if there's enough material to do a book like that for every other faction, but we certainly want to do at least one book that covers all the others like Factions we don't know anything about, really, in the, from the comic, like Project Daedalus or Delphi or Most Perfect Science Division. You know, These are things that kind of come up or get referenced in the comic, but Brian knows what they are, but uh, but they haven't been explained in the comic yet. So I think it'd be really cool to do a book that's just you know, half source book, half mechanic. It's just like, here's some other crazy stuff about the Atomic Robo universe that you didn't know. And then uh, after that, I don't know, but that's enough for now. <laughs> that's, that's enough to plan for the time being, I think. Uh, maybe we'll have to do um, a book that's all about. Well, I, you know, I've. Uh, I guess this. There was a um, volume of Real Science Adventures that was all about Tesla and the Centurions of Science in the 1890s. Tesla, you know, Tesla and his this band of six other adventurers, basically going around doing things, solving problems um, with super science and guns. So it's a, It's Nikola Tesla. It's it's all great characters. Tesla, Annie Oakley, Harry Houdini. Winfield Scott Lovecraft, who's H.P. Lovecraft's father, who's like a secret agent for the government. Their chief uh, He's their chief occult advisor or consultant or something. Wang Qiyin, who's Wang Fei Hung's father, if you're a fan of uh, Wuxia or know anything about uh, Chinese folktales, I think that's pretty red, Wang Qiyin. Charles Fort and um, George Westinghouse. So those are the centurions of science. And I've run a game that's about those characters, where Atomic you know, Robo doesn't figure in it at all, there's no Tesla and uh, that was a pretty fun game. <laughs> so, I'd I'd like to, if we don't touch the factions, I'd like to expand on that more because I think there's a lot there. And yeah. in the well, in current continuity, I won't spoil volume nine for you, but it's relevant to current uh, continuity too.
0: Yeah, I actually want to take back my earlier statement that I want to play Atomic Robo right now. I want to play that game right now. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> Let me tell you. One key, and well,
1: there's an issue of Real Science Adventures volume two that's this story of the Centurions of science that uh there's one issue that's largely just wonky and and annie oakley being awesome together um and uh it's just it's just great that that's uh i highly recommend reading that one of the free comics available on atomic robo.com is the um i guess it's was it, mr tesla's sky electric sky schooner or something there is a there's one little one-off story about um the centurions of science that's on there that you should totally read it introduces all the characters and just uh, is a lot of fun and just from that one little story i was like well this has to be the game clearly like these seven people doing things it's so great um so yeah I, there's basically there's a lot of extra material you know around what around the stuff the comic is usually about there's a lot that's been alluded to so there's definitely room for expansion i just don't know uh, how many you know i don't i don't want that to be like you know the old treadmill i don't think it could be but, um, you know, I'd like to do whatever makes sense for the game line and then no more. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Just what makes sense. That's it. No, no things that don't make sense. But um, I do think there's a lot there.
0: I think that speaks to the to uh, is it Brian and Scott's the world yeah. that they've created, that you have this world that there's all these nooks and crannies that you can explore. It speaks a lot about what they've built. And I mean, I don't know how successful at this point it is. I mean, I know it started as a small indie comic, but it sounds like they've done some amazing things with it. Well, they've been, been happening since, what, 2006 or 2008? Like, it's been going on for quite a while, and uh,
1: it's certainly been very successful for them. I, I remember, um, you know, when – it's funny because when Atomic Robo was in development, I'd hear from people all the time that were enthusiastic about a game coming up, like there being a game. Like, oh, there's like that was a big deal to them. Um, and they came out of the woodwork. You know, I'd see it on Twitter or whatever, people following Brian or Scott or, uh, you know, Red 5 Comics, you know – like there are lots of people that people that might not know anything about gaming who are still interested in the book because it's a great collection of Scott's art, and just as a source book for the setting, it's and an examination of how they uh, structure stories. I think it's really valuable and interesting, which is what I wanted to be. I was like, if people who don't know the source material, reading this book will make you want to read the source material. If you know the source material and you're not a gamer, you should at least enjoy reading this book just for like the timeline and you know, the material that uh, Brian and Scott contributed like all that stuff should still be appealing to you so contrast that with uh so I mentioned earlier the Sparks Nevada role playing game where I'm a big fan of the Thrilling Adventure Hour most of the people I playtested with I would say the like 98% of the people I play tested with they had never heard of Thrilling Adventure Hour they knew nothing about it going in and at the end of the session they were like I've got to listen to this now and a number of them have become like huge fans what, two of the playtesters from the first session I ran went out and bought $300 worth of tickets to the next show. Not not to the rest of the shows in the season, just to the next show. They went out and bought 10 tickets and assumed we're going to find eight friends who want to see this. Oh, wow. <laughs> and just, just went for it. Um, so yeah, it's that game has been converting people to Thrilling Adventure Hour fans at an alarming rate. So I think it's kind of the way it, it's been – they've been total opposites, you know um, – I mean, I ran into a lot of people who playtesting Atomic Robo who didn't know Atomic Robo, but I'd almost always have at least one person at the table who was a fan of Robo but who never played Fate. You know, that that was pretty common. One time I had everyone at the table knew Fate and knew Atomic Robo. That was insane. But, um, you know, generally speaking, you could find Atomic Robo fans which sign up for these games because they were excited by the comic and the prospect of playing a game. But Sparks Nevada, people sign up for it not knowing at all what it is. <laughs> And they play it, and they become huge fans. So, yeah, it's a, it's a whole spectrum. But I'm I'm happy that I'm happy with the way the books come out. That I feel like you cannot read this book without wanting to read the
2: comic.
0: Again, I will I will kind of close here, and I'll let Caleb wrap this up. But absolutely, I, I was not familiar with the comic at all. I love the book. It, it again, I hold Fate Core as a gold standard of RPG books, and I think this book supersedes that in some ways. Uh, so you should be very proud of it. It's it's an awesome book. I want to play the game so badly. And I do want to check out the comics, and I probably will some. So my last question before I turn it back over to Caleb is, is Scott and Brian going to be at Gen Con possibly, or do you know?
1: No, those guys, um, they don't go to anything. They go to only a few conventions a year. Um, so no, and I can't drag them out to Gen Con. Uh, they don't go to Comic Con either. So like I basically, I've gotten to meet them in person and play with them once at Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle last year. Um, yeah. I have those guys, I, you know, they live on the East Coast. I live on the West Coast. It's just how it goes. Um, they went to a a game day at um, uh, Labyrinth in Washington D.C. Brian went to that. There was an Atomic Robo like day uh, when the game, like a launch party when the game came out. So Brian at least went to that and played with uh, Fred and Rob Donahue, I believe. I thought I think everyone went to that. Everyone but me. I don't get to go to anything except ten conventions mm. a
2: year.
0: All right, so we're, we're going to let Caleb wrap this up. All righty,
2: so we are going to wrap up here. Mr. Mike Olson, our RPG Academy wrap-up question for you. If you could give one piece of advice to a brand-new player or GM in any type of role-playing game, what advice would you give them? Um,
1: I'm going to steal from Apocalypse World and Dungeon World because that game takes good GM advice and makes it rules. Um, both those games... I think the biggest thing is be a fan of the player characters as a GM. Like, be a fan of your players. Want them to look good, and uh, they don't have to succeed all the time, but they don't have to look foolish either. (laughs) You know, make make them look good. Um, I think that's really important. How you frame their failure and fake core goes goes into this too, but how you frame their failures is uh, important in terms of how their characters come off that's my personal preference. I know there's fun to be had and it's like characters bumbling around and hitting themselves in the head with maces and whatever, but, um, you know, I kind of like cool, competent characters and fate supports that. So, um, those go
2: naturally together. There you go. That's great. Thank you very much for being on the show with us. This was a blast talking to you. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. You're definitely passionate about this property that has come out in your, your physical work and our conversation here. So, Thanks for uh, killing the evening with us, and uh, (laughs) this was wonderful. We will look forward to actually meeting you in person and uh, throwing down a little bit.
1: Yeah, for sure, Um, and, you know, hopefully, Michael, we won't hate each other when we meet each (laughs) other at but, you know, I'm I'm willing to take the chance, Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to it.
0: Uh, If you're willing, I'm willing. Uh, Again, I know I'm going to hit Games on Demand at some point, so hopefully, and I have your Twitter handle, uh, it's Devlin1, uh, so we can communicate and try to match up even... And even if it's just a quick hello, pass you in the hallway type of thing, I'd like to say hi. And uh, I don't know, maybe have you signed Absolutely. a copy of a book I might have in my hand at that time?
1: Sure, I'm, you know, whatever the book is, I'll sign it.
0: Um,
2: he charges $25 a pop, Mike. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, uh,
1: I often joke that I'll sign books for a nominal fee, but, um, you know, no one, I think sometimes people might take me seriously, but I'm not <laughs> being serious. I'm not going to charge any money. Um, but uh, should I plug my things now? Yes, please. Uh, so, on Twitter, I'm at Devlin1. You can follow me there. I'm on Google+. My name is Mike Olson. I don't know how to find me on Google+, but spell my name, O-L-S-O-N, and you'll probably find me. I'm on Facebook, too, but you're probably better off following me on Twitter, really. My blog is spiritoftheblank.blogspot.com, and uh, I think uh, that's about it for my stuff to plug. So, um, yeah, come out. Um, say hi at Gen Con, if you're coming to Gen Con. Uh, I would uh, be happy to see a book with my name on it in your hand. That's kind of a thrill.
0: Awesome. Well, Mike, uh, for, for Caleb and myself, thank you again for spending the evening with us. It was a great conversation. I'm sure it makes a great podcast. And, uh, again, I'm a huge fan of Atomic Robo, so this was great for us as well. And um, hopefully I'll see you at Gen Con.
1: Yeah, thanks, guys.
0: You can give us feedback and comments on our website, therpgacademy.com. You can listen to previous podcasts on our website and subscribe to new ones on iTunes. If you have a suggestion for a table topic, we'd love to hear it. Email us at podcast at therpgacademy.com or connect with us. We're on Twitter at therpgacademy. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash therpgacademy. We also have a Google Plus page, therpgacademy. As always, thanks for listening, and remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.